0: thinking people realize that solving such problems requires systematic observation and the gathering of many facts. All the factors bearing on the problem have to be investigated. Then, the facts have to be studied to find the best ways of solving the problem. This is the method of common sense thinking fully as much as it is the method of science. But the scientist uses this method for a deeper purpose, to gain an understanding of the world in which we live. key tool for the scientist is theory. It provides a supported explanation that may unify accepted facts or model the mechanics of the world. It provides both a language and a path towards truth through the elimination of falsehoods. This is Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. In this episode of our series on cybercrime theory, we dive into the general theory of crime and low self-control. Dr. Kathy Markham, Assistant Chair and Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at the Appalachian State University, is our guide to help us understand if some people just can't help but be badly behaved online.
1: Okay, so general theory of crime, um, or the theory of low self-control, was introduced by Travis Hershey and Michael Godfredson back in 1990. And the theory essentially asserts that individuals who have lower levels of self-control are more likely to participate in deviant and criminal behavior. And when the theory was first introduced, um, this lower level of self-control is a result of a few different things. So changing biology, um, different hormone development, even the way that you're socialized or the opportunities that are presented um, to you, you know, when it comes to committing deviant or or criminal acts. And really individuals who have low self-control are very short cited in the repercussions of their actions. And so I'll often tell my students, for instance, you know, I'm at an age now, and hopefully soon they will be in their early 20s, when they get their first job, they're thinking about retirement, which at the age of 25 may seem forever from now, but as we know, it goes by very quickly. Um, So when we're choosing jobs and making investments, we're thinking about the long term, what are these decisions going to do to affect our life um, when it comes to individuals who have low self-control, Godfreyton and Hershey said that they're not looking at that. They're very impulsive. They're all about taking risk and they're about immediate gratification. So if I'm considering shop listing an item, if it's you know something like a lipstick or a candy bar, I'm just thinking about what am I going to get from that immediately, rather than, well, if I do this, then I may get arrested. I may have a criminal charge. I may have a criminal history, and so forth and so on. Um, and general theory of crime has been used to explain personal crime, property crime. And now, of course, as we are getting into quite the important age of cyber criminality and figuring out why individuals do what they do, it's been used quite a bit to apply to, to cybercrime.
0: And the, the basis of this is that people are essentially hedonistic.
1: Yes, exactly. That, that is exactly right. So if we, you know, it takes its roots all from classical schools. So classical school criminology was introduced in the mid-1700s. And when that occurred, when it was introduced, we were in a time in the Middle Ages that behavior was perceived, especially in, in Europe, to be predetermined. And so, you know, we were being controlled by possession, uh, demonic forces, essentially. And then beccaria and later, later Jeremy Bentham in the mid-1700s during this Enlightenment period in history said, you know, I don't think that's quite right that actually behavior may be a result of free will, of humans are rational. Um, And Bentham specifically said, we are a very hedonistic people. And so it's a me, me, me type of situation. And what's going to be the best for me? What's going to bring me the best, you know, highest amount of pleasure, the quickest. And that's exactly what general theory of crime is saying, is rather than looking at the long-term pain or cons that, you know, are associated with criminal behavior, Instead, we're looking at what immediate satisfaction can we get from that.
0: So the idea at the base is that people aren't essentially good or necessarily evil. They're just looking for whatever gives them the most pleasure and uh, avoids the the harshest pain.
1: Exactly. It's a, it's a pleasure principle for sure. I mean, there's even basis um, from Freud's work, you know, in the early 1900s about the pleasure principle. And, and something else to... Um, introduced which it has been you know um questioned but in causes some controversy and discussion about general theory of crime but Godfrey and hershey in, in 19, when they introduced this theory believed that children developed self-control about the age of seven or eight and that these levels remain relatively stable so you know there was this assertion that any um, not that you can't grow and mature because we obviously do But what you get in your very early stages of life is what's going to set you up to are you going to be able to have high levels of self-control or are you set at a base of very low levels of self-control?
0: So the the differentiator between someone who's more likely to commit a a crime and and someone who's less likely to commit a crime sort of just generally – uh, would be this self-control that they've developed until they're eight years of age.
1: Exactly. That's, that's the basic premise of general theory of crime, is that the low level of self-control, or your level of self-control, is is a very significant predictor in your participation in that behavior.
0: So this theory has obviously developed a little bit since that original uh, assertion.
1: Yes. It, it has. There's been some amendments to it. There's been changes. Um, but it is, as I've mentioned, it's a very popular theory. It's been applied for quite a long time. Um, When I first got on the um, first got on the scene, but when I first started doing cybercrime research, I was actually an undergraduate. So I was um, doing my study with my mentor and now very good colleague, George Higgins. Um, And he was my research methods professor and approached me about doing a study. And we started looking at digital piracy. So at that time, I believe it was the year 2001. Um, you know, the Internet was gaining some popularity. And so Napster was coming onto the scene. Um, e- email as a method of communication for college students was becoming more and more prominent. Um, you know, and my students today, they can't imagine a world without these items, without use of email. But it was you know, becoming more popular then. And we started looking at illegal downloading of music specifically, as well as software and movies. Um, And, you know, Dr. Higgins at the time and, you know, we've continued to use this theory to apply as well as many other scholars to look at digital piracy, as well as different cyber crimes but have found, you know, there is a continuous pattern of low self-control being a significant predictor of cybercrime. You know, and we may talk about this later, but different work that we've done more recently has looked at levels of low self-control as a predictor of cyberbullying, of cyberstalking. Other work has looked at hacking behaviors. And so, again, it continuously is supported as a predictor.
0: So it... it there is support for the application of it in in cybercrime, so it, it's a absolutely. It's an it's an older theory from um, the the physical space that seems to have transferred quite well online.
1: Absolutely, and and you will have, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you were going to interview Dr. Burris in the future about social learning theory. That's another one that has has shown to be quite prominent and received a lot of support in explaining cybercrime, and so. You know, I think that that, as a whole, you know, cybercrime is a newer form of criminality compared to personal and property crime, because the internet, you know, on the grand scheme is younger, but as it has developed, it's becoming more prominent in American households. Um, we are a very technologically reliant society right now. You know, my my students who were born in the either very late 1990s, but generally in the early 2000s, will never know a world without the ability to have constant connection. And so I think that that's why it's becoming more prominent. And we're, you know, utilizing and applying these theories more and more, um, including general theory of crime, because it's helping us better understand why people are committing these crimes, but also, hopefully, you know, predict, um, not only predict behavior, but plan for policies and programs and things that we're using at the elementary school level to teach students about safer internet use and, you know, repercussions of these things. You,
0: you mentioned social learning theory there just quickly. I, I guess it's important to mention that although the general theory is, is a control theory uh, of, of, of crime, that there, there are some interactions between it and, and social learning theory.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, so, uh, excuse me. general theory of crime has basis with Hershey's social bond theory, for instance, and social learning theory does as well. And, and look at the importance of social bond um, to those who are important, you know, in your peer group and in your intimate groups, but as well as with the community and your involvement in the community. Um, you know, forecasting in your mind, if I commit XYZ behaviors, what effect will it have in those who have weaker bonds? Um, are more likely, you know, That the Hershey social bond, as well as social learning theory asserts those that, you know, spend time with intimate peer groups who commit deviant behaviors. Those who have lower and weaker social bonds to the community are more likely to participate in deviant and criminal acts. Um, They just don't have that tie. They don't have the foresight to look forward and go, you know, if I vandalize my former elementary school, if I spray paint inappropriate words or pictures, you know, it, to me, it may be immediately gratifying because I'm angry about something or I just want to, you know, put my art on a wall. But what are the long-term repercussions? Do I care that this is going to happen? Yeah,
0: I guess the that's where you can see the influence of differential association in, in, in both of those theories. Absolutely. I guess there's something else that we, we should talk about, and that's the idea of opportunity as being an important factor in being able to commit a crime because – if you're by yourself in the desert, it's a little bit hard to right. commit a crime, regardless of how much self-control you have. So how does how does opportunity figure in with the general theory?
1: You know, when we think about crimes committed in the physical world, that is definitely um, a huge key piece is the opportunity to do so. So going back to the shoplifting example, for instance, if you are at a convenience store, and you have three or four people surrounding you, you may not have the opportunity to steal that candy bar or steal that item because you're being watched constantly. You know, if you're not being watched, if you are isolated in that convenience store, there's more of an opportunity. And the same with other types of crime, whether it be personal crime, you know, theft, um, financial theft or embezzlement, you know, there's got to be an opportunity present. When it comes to the computer, when it comes to the internet, that is one of the beauties Uh, Of this, you know, huge, big connected network that we have is that the opportunity that I have to commit crime is simply a matter of me having Internet connectivity and some type of access, whether it be via my laptop or my phone or, you know, even the computer at the local library. So I can sit by myself in my home, in a classroom, you know, on the bus while I'm going back to my home um, and commit a crime online. And, you know, we've found this too, for instance, with cyberbullying studies, that low levels of self-control are linked to that. Cyberbullying can be a variety of behaviors, whether it be um, exposing a person online to private information, such as their sexuality or, or relationship status. If we want to hurl insults online, if we want to um, you know, post untrue facts, gossip, for instance, we can do so and we have the opportunity to do so because it's a matter of clicking on my Facebook app or my Instagram app or, or Snapchat, if that's what you use, um, and typing out something quickly that's nasty or an insult, you know, it's a rumor. And, and there you go. The opportunity is constantly there. Um, when we're thinking about more nefarious types of crime such as financial fraud or child pornography online, it may take a little more effort Um, we may need to go into the dark web, for instance, or or seek out opportunities. And given, you know, a few moments of research and, you know, clicking or even just using, you know, a Google or a Bing type of search engine, you can find those very quickly. And, And another thing too about opportunity is with a lot of crimes, especially with, you know, financial crimes, for instance, you often have to have some type of skill or training. That's not necessarily the case with Cyber crimes. You can commit a lot of cyber crimes and victimize individuals with very little training um, and just a brief knowledge of how to log in to an app or to access a website.
0: That's, uh, I guess that's where the internet provides a difference, that, that there may be something particular about internet crime that's different from crime in a physical space.
1: Yeah, and I, I was actually, I have a cyber crime class this semester and I was telling them this yesterday is when I was dating, which to them is fairly traumatizing, I think, to think about their old professor dating. But when I was dating, you know, you met people in a variety of physical settings, whether it be restaurants, bars, sporting events, you know, that's how you depended on meeting potential mates and and getting to know each other. Now it's becoming such prominence and expected to be using dating apps and using the internet. Not that that, you know, there's anything wrong, with using those, that's one again the beauty of technology is having different opportunity to connect with a wide variety of people. Um, but with that being said, there is also expanded opportunity to participate in very inappropriate and negative relationships behaviors. So, for instance, Dr. Higgins and I um, collected a sample of information from. High school students as well as university students from university um, students in the southeast, I should say, where both of us are located. And we ask them a lot of information about their dating habits, um, tracking and monitoring their significant others without their knowledge. So, for instance, logging on to their social networks, logging into their bank account information, um, even putting GPS trackers on their phones. Without their knowledge and some with their knowledge and and ask them questions about, you know, is this appropriate behavior in a relationship? Is this expected? What impacts do you feel what happens? So looking at long term again, Um, and so many of them, a surprising amount, reported that this was normal behavior that they had. In we relay back on social learning theory that they had seen their peers perform these behaviors that it was almost expected. And so to us, we consider this stalking behavior. Legally, it's defined as stalking behavior. But to many undergraduate students and even high school students, this is expected. It is the norm. Um, and when reflecting upon it, some of them who have higher levels of self-control, interestingly enough, felt that if their partner found out that they were you know, looking at their bank accounts or monitoring their location, without without knowledge or permission, that there probably would be a negative impact. So that person may break up with them. They may be angry with them. They may even exact revenge on them. But those who had lower levels of self-control um, were less likely to see this, consider it, or even care. That's,
0: it's, it's really quite interesting that there is a, a, I guess this is a crossover between digital Intimacy, like a, a way of being closer to a person through technology, and going over the top to to a, a, a dangerous and a controlling behavior.
1: Absolutely, and, and I think too, and a lot of psychological research has supported this that this generation and in moving forward because they are so technologically reliant um, are not learning the same social skills that you and I learned, you know, when we were a little bit younger, and of course those generations before us, such as using the telephone. Uh, and having one-on-one conversation, there has been psychological literature that that has shown that, you know, even eye-to-eye contact, for instance, is more difficult um, because there is such a reliance and usage of technology. Uh, cyberbullying literature, you know, things that Dr. Higgins and I have done, um, that I've done with other scholars and, and other scholars have done on their own, has shown that individuals feel more comfortable cyberbullying because of the indirect aggression that it it maintains. So for instance, I don't have to look at you and physically assault you or tell you, you know, I think you're ugly, or I think that your clothes are stupid. I can do it all online. I don't have to have any type of direct interaction with you and not feel bad about it. Um, And and that, you know, we see this when it comes to relationship building, whether it be platonic or romantic, is that there is, you know, an unawareness of how to have one-on-one conversations, for instance. Um, You know, I'm, no, I'm, (laughs) Dating myself because I tell my students I probably still look like their grandmother, but you often see if you go in a social setting and you see individuals on a date, for instance, you can tell two young people are on a date together, but you know, how often are they texting on their phone or they're looking at social media while they're waiting on their food um, rather than talking with each other? You know, you I, I've joked before with my husband, I wonder if they're texting each other, they're just not speaking. Um, but it, it is, it's, it's more of a comfort for them to have that ability to communicate. Again, the reliance on dating apps, the reliance on social media, um, and the opportunities are just different in, in what's expected in the social norms. I,
0: I guess that's probably the thing that, that is interesting, that, that ever-present and, and very easy opportunity to do any form of communication with a, with a, with a mobile device. It might, be, it might be intimate and beneficial, but at the same time, um, it could be very harmful.
1: Absolutely. You, something else um, that we've looked at, and I know other scholars have looked at, is sexting um, and now other forms of non-consensual pornography, for instance, like revenge porn. Um, we did a study with high school students and it was becoming more and more acceptable when I say that in quotes, but more of a norm to share partially nude or nude pictures of themselves with a significant other or someone they're interested in. Um, but when it comes to distributing that, so let's say you know I'm a high school student and m- my love interest sends me a picture uh, with with partially nude or you know nude um, of chest or you know whole body region, and I decide to send that on to my friends. Well, now we're kind of crossing borders of sexting, but as well as child pornography offenses, and it, you know individuals who do this who may be 16, 17, or 18 years old um, have been found to have lower levels of self control and they just you know hey look what i just got you know rather than thinking of the long term repercussions of what could happen to this person we've seen you know individuals commit suicide or attempt to commit suicide there's higher rates of that because of these types of pictures and videos that have been sent to a love interest or a significant other that get out in the general public um there's a great documentary on netflix netflix excuse me called audrey and daisy that was just released and it features in the very beginning a young woman who had pictures taken of her while she was intoxicated um, in, in a sexual mindset that were circulated. And she took her own life because of just the, you know, the stress and the harassment that was associated with that. So we do see quite a bit of just opportunity. As you say, again, it's just a completely different world of opportunity to do things. Um, lower levels of self-control, less foresight to see this may happen, this could affect this person um, so negatively. Because of a simple action
0: that I may do, and I'm just going to mention that that in Canada, at least, the the non-consensual distribution of intimate images is is illegal there. We have a specific law for exactly that. But also, uh, under un, under the the uh, the age of consent, I think it, it generally is that's going to potentially present more problems with with child pornography and distribution laws so that that's it's definitely a thing that's in the in the not okay basket but that might not have much of an impact if we're looking at it in terms of general theory as those with low self-control might act even impulsively and not even think about the potential consequences to, I mean, definitely to the other person, but themselves as well in terms of uh, legal repercussions.
1: Oh, absolutely. You're completely right. You know, if you have a lower level of self-control, it may not be in your ability or you may not choose to consider those long-term repercussions. Um, it, you know, and, and two... You think about that age group, you know, uh, of middle school and high school students. You know, our brains do not fully form until we're about 23 or 24 years old, and so our abilities to make rational, thoughtful decisions—and this is not to justify, you know, the sharing of non-consensual pornography or sexting at all—but oftentimes these young people are not considering the long-term effects. It's just not in their mindset. They're thinking other things, you know, whether they're angry or how, you know, this is funny or this is, you know, something I want my buddies to see. Um, It's just, you know, and when they get a little bit older, so when they're in their mid-20s and 30s and 40s, they can truly wrap their head around, oh, this is bad and this is why this is bad. And these are the long-term effects of of what could possibly happen.
0: So low self-control appears to have some... Some relationship with with um, people not understanding the impact that it might have, they might not perceive a potential problem in the eyes of their partners in the kind of behaviors that you mentioned a, a while ago of 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 tracking them and things like that and and also with sexting uh, it, it might be Related to the is is was it the frequency of, of sexting or just the tendency towards sexting?
1: It's both. That um, there have been research, some that we've done and some that others have done, that has shown that individuals with lower levels of self control are more likely to sex, to send more sex, uh, sexting pictures, videos, um, anything with sexual content, um, to you know, participate as a whole to perceive that their friends are more likely to do it, um, just to find it more acceptable. Um, as I said, you know, before, it seems to be more common practice in relationship building. Uh, you know, and I think that there was a, an activity I did with a, a colleague at her university a couple years ago where we were speaking to her students and did not ask for volunteers, but we said, okay, in your mind, Think about have you ever sent a picture of, you know, partially nude or nude to a person who was, you know, of interest to you? And why did you do that? Would you want someone else to know that you did that? So, thinking about, you know, government monitoring of our technology and things like that. And you could see the looks on their faces, you know, kind of change, whether it went from guilt to shock to concern and thinking, oh, you know, maybe that there are further reaching repercussions to what I've, you know, done. One woman said, it's expected that if you are interested in someone that you show them what you have or what you're able to do. And that was very disturbing to me. It was sad that this is, you know, where so many of these young people feel that this is what it means to to maintain and to build relationship. Um, There's an expectation that we have to display so much of our private lives via technology, and that their levels of protection um, are so limited.
0: uh, A few episodes ago, I talked to uh, Dr. Alice Hutchings about uh, Mm e-whoring, and one of the places that that the people assembling a a set of photos for a a, a virtual profile to to share these photos online, they looked in social media and they looked for, they were very, it seemed seemed like uh, pictures that seemed more like a real person, i.e., of a real person might be more valuable to those those groups. So there's definitely a, a, a demand for those pictures. Like if, if, if the genie gets out of the bottle, there are people definitely looking for
1: them. Right, and, and you know, and as you said, theory, you know, general theory of crime, for instance, we, we can look at low self-control in those who are taking the pictures and sending them out as well as those who are accessing them. Um, even, you know, when we look at child pornography, or revenge porn websites. You know, there are people who are being victimized, some very young and very vulnerable um, that have no protection. They they don't understand the expectation of privacy. Or even if they're adults, they have a significant other or ex-significant other who's very angry with them um, and who found the opportunity to victimize them. You know, I'll show you, I'm going to put your your video or your picture online and now the world can see. Um, and it's, it's as we know, with cyber victimization, it just takes one time, one posting, and then the continuous sharing, the opportunity, again, to share, to pass it on, to send a link, is just, you know, unreachable. It's just, you know, it can go from one person to 100,000 people in just an hour.
0: So some of the other work you've done has been looking uh, at, at hacking among high school students.
1: Yeah. So we've looked, and, and this was one of the... um part of the same data set that we look at sexting. Um, Dr. Higgins and I, we do quite a bit of cyber work together, looked at um, high school students in the state that I was located in. We went to several rural high schools as well as one that was more urban and surveyed them um, on their behaviors online. And so there was a wide range from hacking behaviors um, as well as cyberbullying um, behaviors of a sexual based nature and we found a consistent pattern of support for social learning theory as well as general theory of crime to predict these behaviors, including hacking behaviors. And these were more focused on illegal downloading of music and movies.
0: Right. So, in in the the, the context of this study, the the hacking behaviors are they're not breaking into NORAD or or something like that. It's it's downloading movies and and uh, things of that nature, games. It-
1: Exactly. And so this is again, you know, we've talked about this earlier is that hackers, you know, we, most of us have heard of the group Anonymous, for instance, and there are hackers who are very skilled, very trained, um, can break into, you know, it's very much an Ocean's Eleven type of mentality, only online, you know, it takes so much energy and time and just intelligence to do certain types of hacking and to break into these huge mainframes. Um, But there's also very simple hacking techniques that high school students are very capable of figuring out with just a couple of clicks, um, you know, trying to figure out someone's password. And for many people, it's not difficult to figure out their password, especially if they use the same password for, you know, all of their accounts. Um, And so these students were figuring out how to illegally download music and movies, which is easily accessible online, as well as simple things like hack into the accounts of their friends, their peers. To look at, you know, and then that may transition into cyberbullying. If I can hack into your Facebook or your Instagram, look, I can pretend to be you and send funny emails or messages or nasty messages on someone else's Facebook.
0: And I'm going to suggest that if if as part of Anonymous, you downloaded and used the low but iron cannon, the, the distributed denial of service tool to assist Anonymous in their effort, that was probably not something that required a great deal of self-control either.
1: Correct. Absolutely. It, you know, the hacker mentality, and I don't, you know, Dr. Tom Holt does a lot of work um, out of Michigan State on hacking, and he could speak to this much better than I, but, you know, I think one of the main, um, the underlying current in the hacker um, community is is the ability to have free information, and that all information should be accessible and free. And so, um, whether you are the most skilled hacker, or even if you are the high school student that just wants to Hack into the department of education and see your grades, or if you just want to see what your buddy's doing on, on social media or illegally downloading music and movies, it's that mentality of I should have access to the, the world should have access to this. And so, you know, as you mentioned your example, sharing this information, sharing this ability um, should be free to the public.
0: This podcast is also free. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, I guess that leaves us at the point of, of maybe maybe asking some questions, and I'm not sure if the current state of recess, research allows us to make any sort of clear statements about this, but if self-control is a, a determinant of crime and it's an important factor, what can we do knowing that to, to reduce the incidence of crime? Is there anything that we can do, or where it's just kind of that's the way it is, it is what it is, and, and we accept it?
1: I think... There's, there's some approaches that we can take, and we can rely back on, you know, the ineffectiveness, ineffectiveness of the D.A.R.E. program from the 80s, when First Lady Nancy Reagan took this as her initiative to say no to drugs, and we really pressed the D.A.R.E. program. We continue to use it today, and the, the basis of that program is extremely honorable, and, you know, it has an amazing message. Uh, the dangers of drugs, you know, the what happens is when it spirals out of control and we target a very young audience with the D.A.R.E. program. Um, and some of the things that we've seen ineffective about it, as you know, is that we, we sort of stop, right? That we, we target the fifth and sixth graders or sometimes even younger, but we don't really follow through when we go into middle school and high school and, and undergraduate if they go that far. That's something that we need to do with our technological community when it comes to educating the younger generation. Um, I have children myself, and they again. I have friends who are very technologically reliant. They're wanting to be more involved themselves, and I think it's important that we start with this younger age, much like we did with drugs. You know, these are the things that you can do online, but these are also the dangers that you have online. And as these students and children progress through these grades, to make these you know educational forums regular but also to advance in the knowledge and the maturity level that we show them. You know, we can tell our first, second, and third graders of, you know, never use the computer without a parent or a guardian. These are some of the acceptable sites and fun sites that you can use. And these are the types of things you need to, to stay away from. But then in the hiring these students, this is what it means to share your pictures of yourself. This is what it means to go online and say nasty things about other people and distribute that to your, your friends. These are the repercussions that can happen. And while it's not comfortable to hear about you know, suicide attempts and, and the devastating things that can happen, I think it's important for them to hear it. I think it's important for the undergraduate community to hear it so that they know that when they take the opportunity to victimize someone, to damage someone, that they may not even perceive as damaging or victimizing, that there are very strong and long-term effects. So, while we have no control over someone's you know, level of self control in regards to what they get in their home life, um, what their socialization is outside of school, what, um, you know, biologically, obviously we have no control of, of what's going on inside someone in regards to how that affects their self control, but we can combat those levels of low self control and, and expectations with, you know, education. With a true understanding of these are things that are happening, and this is what can happen. Uh, I don't want it to, you know, just the, the scared straight programs have not been shown to be effective because that one and done. You know, this is really bad, and this is are all the horrible things that can happen. They just don't resonate if it's just a one time thing. It needs to be a continuous education throughout their educational career as they move, you know, K through twelve, and then even into these undergraduate and institutional settings. It's
0: a different application of. Uh, cl- think before you click, I guess.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, There's, you know, there's a lot of different great cyber education programs that are out there, especially for the Scouts, for instance, my son's a Boy Scout, and and they do that every year, which is great. And it's really important. But at his age, he will not truly understand what it means um, with the use of technology that high school students do, for instance, or, or college students. And so I think that, again, that education needs to follow them at maturity level, as well as those behaviors that they are getting into because they change as they get older. Um, you know, what we use YouTube for as a fourth grader, for instance, to find funny videos or, uh, you know, TikTok was in the, the media for the dangers associated with that. It was assumed to be a very safe children's website where they could find funny videos or post videos as themselves. But not surprisingly, there are predators on there who are trying to access information, who are making threats towards children, um, they t- children need to be aware of this, and and importantly, parents need to be aware of it. Um, there's a lot of uh, ability that you know, not even I know how to do, how to do that. I'm going to probably rely on my graduate students, for instance, as we move into the future for my own kids. Of okay, what can they do? You know, children are very smart. They can get around different things. They can hide behaviors. They can you know get fake um, profiles and do different things. And so it's important for parents to be aware that we shouldn't blindly trust our children to use the internet safely, that they can be infiltrated and there is access to very dark things.
0: I, I look forward to seeing Elmo and Captain America talking about the dangers of sexting, <laughs> astroturfing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I agree. And if that's who we need to use, that's what we'll do, I think.
0: <laughs> so so a final question, and this is a this is a pie in the sky kind of imaginative question for you. If if you had unlimited funds and access to resources, an uh, 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 unending lab full of grad students to assist. What are the kinds of things that you would like to find the answers to? What are some research areas that you would really like to um to, to address?
1: Oh, wow. that um, If I had pie in the sky, if I had all the money in the world, I, I really think that I would like to do um, a national survey as well as interviews. Doing in focused groups of middle school and high school students in regard to their behaviors. And there's a lot of great research that's already doing very similar things. Um, you know, it obviously takes a lot of money and permission to do so. Uh, but I that's what I would like to do to talk to these students, to get um, to have multiple interactions with them, spend quite a bit of time with them, whether it be in their classroom, in these small groups, to see what they're doing online, to see, you know, how comfortable they are with certain websites and accessing certain areas. What you know, what do they expect? I think that the expectation for relationship building is going to continue to evolve and change because technology continues to evolve and change on a daily basis. Um, to really understand their motivators to why they're doing the things that they're doing, to look at on a theoretical basis. Is it self-control? Is it, you know, social learning, which again I, I believe will continue to show a significant pattern of prediction. Um, but I think the more we investigate, And the more we understand, the better that we can plan, the better policies, the better programming, the better laws that we can create. You know, our criminal justice system, and and this is not a criticism because, you know, cybercrime changes every day. Offenders get better every day. But our CJ system struggles to keep up. And it's not because they don't want to. It's because, you know, understanding those techniques and mentalities. And so I think in order for us to pass better laws for punishment, Um, for treatment, for for resources, for victims, for compensation. We need to better understand why people are doing what they're doing and what opportunities there are to do that. Dr.
0: Markham, thank you for your time and uh, thank you for your research.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Big thanks to Dr. Markham for the insights on general theory and for sharing her research which applied it to cybercrime. Remember to subscribe, as there are more podcasts on theory to come, as well as our more regular episodes on cybercrime research. This has been Cybercriminology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, and it's made possible by the kind guests sharing their time and their research. If you would like to know more about the topics or papers mentioned in this show, please check out the show notes at cybercrimeology.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach me at at CyberCrimology on Twitter or by old fashioned email at cybercrimology at gmail.